Amen. First Samuel chapter 27 this evening. A repeated mistake. It's not easy to give a title to so many of these chapters because there's, I mean, there's so much else in there. Well, the first clause of verse 1 in chapter 27 is it's linked to the last section of chapter 26. And it's critical to understand that, to understand what's going on in David's head at this time, to sort of allow ourselves to put ourselves in his place to some degree. He's just so sick and tired of Saul, who is obsessed with hating David and determined to kill him, to murder him. And David's just sick of running. He has fled to the Philistine territory before. That was a disaster. And he repeats this mistake. And it's good that we consider this for our, in our own lives because it's so easy to do. Well, it didn't work the first time. You know, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Well, sometimes it can be an evidence of insanity to do the same thing over and over again. It doesn't work. Fact. David would flee to the Philistines, and not be harassed by Saul again. Fact, it's not where he belonged. Had Saul not died 16 months later, who knows what would have happened to David's heart, his relationship with the Lord. What if he had been there five years? We have no psalm from David at this time in his life. Not that, there, I mean, many of the Psalms are not, there's no indication as to when they were written. But we've covered this earlier. Many of the Psalms that came out of this time in his life aren't titled for us. We have the indicators there to know. Now we look at verse 1 of First Samuel 27. And David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me and that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. And Saul will despair of me to seek me any more in any part of Israel, so I shall escape out of his hand. Well, that's how, what was going on in his head. At some point, of course, he shares this, and that's how it becomes uh, published. And as I mentioned, these words belong with chapter 26, because David had a chance again to kill Saul and put an end to this nightmare. But he takes the moral high road and he spares Saul's life. And he, of course, exposes Saul and Saul goes into this monologue about how sorry he is. It's a sorry monologue. And David said, I am trusting him with my life. I don't believe a word of it. And so they, they go separate ways. But as this is playing in David's head, he's saying, he's not going to stop. You're going to come after me again. And if I don't get out of here, he's going to kill me. And we'll open some of that up. So here he is talking to himself about his problem. Now we could point out very easily, yeah, but he wasn't talking to God. Well, that might be so. But before we sit in the seat of judgment, let's put ourselves in the hot seat a little bit also. But that does still come out. You have to, you can't dismiss that point because when the Bible points it out, we're quick to pick it up. And when the Bible omits it, we have to pick that up also. 
And so this is what he says to himself. And part of it is that Saul's obsession is God's permission. I mean, he's got to be saying, why can't he just fall off of his horse? Saul, why can't he just fall? And and everything will be all right. Wore down his faith down to this moment. Saul will not leave him alone. And where I am going, Saul will not dare to follow me. That's his, his reasoning. He felt this was his best choice, the lesser of two evils. There were other choices. Now understand, he had quite a few men and women with him and their livestock. And so it wasn't as though it's just David. He could just flee you know, pretty much anywhere to get away from Saul. He could have, uh, not that he would have, but he could have fled to Egypt, for example. So it is understandable, but it's not acceptable based on the information that we have. And I don't think that we should look to emulate David's approach of, of going to the enemy's territory to find safety there. But, again, it's easy to stand here in an air conditioned room with friends and say such a thing, as opposed to having to try to survive the next day. But the promises of God, they became distant and blurry to David. And we understand these things. After a while, you wonder what God is doing. David had to be wondering, well, what is my responsibility as far as my survival goes? And what is God's responsibility? But the way he words it is though he's going to get caught by Saul and God has said that's not going to happen. He's going to get to the throne. Remember we had that beautiful uh, speech by Abigail. That great assurances. But when you're hounded by something in life, it doesn't have to be a Saul. It could be something else. You ride the roller coaster. One minute you're up. Trusting the Lord, you've got your spiritual muscles, you come to a church like this, you hear beautiful, great, powerful sermons that you've never heard anywhere else. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. (laughs) And then, of course, you go back into your car and the problem's, hi, I've been waiting for you. (laughs) I used to feel like years ago, I'd get up in the morning and there was this bear sitting at the foot of my bed. Hey, Red, I've been waiting for you to get up. And onto my shoulders he would go. I haven't had that too much uh, and, and don't want it. But I understand, and I know many of you do also. And so, again, we can't blame David for feeling this way. I would not want to be in his situation. But it doesn't mean he made the right choice, even though God's mercy is all over this. Even if Saul does stop hunting him because of this choice, does not confirm that this is what was Supposed to happen. Now, how could I say this? Knowing that doubts will silence our convictions. You know, you have this conviction, don't do that. And you begin to doubt, well, maybe I will do that. Well, here's why we, well, at least I believe, and others too, that David should not have fled. First Samuel 22, now the prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Those were his last orders. We don't hear of God giving David any other direction. He also had uh, the prophet, uh, the the priest with him. He could have consulted the Urim and the Thummim. He will do that later. In fact, when he finally 
Saul does die, and David goes, uh, he seeks the Lord from Ziklag, where do I go? And God says, go to Hebron, because of, he has this means of contacting the Lord. But he is not exercising it here. At least we don't read of it. Doubt presses us to change our convictions. Pressure. You put enough pressure on a person, you find out, you know, what cloth they're cut from. Some people lie like that. You put a little pressure on them, they lie instantly. Others, you know, they're tougher in that area, but weaker maybe in another. Rock, paper, scissors is so much a part of life. Strong in one area, weak in another area. Well... Uh, this pressure on his conviction, if you crack, you can leave you with very negative results. Many, many become apostates. Many fall away from the faith because they don't get out of their Christianity what they were expecting to get out of their Christianity. They had hoped for something else. And when in time they realize, well, it's, this is not how you know it's going to be, they change convictions, that pressure uh, upon them for not arriving at some state of perfection. Other religions say, seek perfection too. It's, it's not in this life. But the pursuit of perfection is everywhere, and we are supposed to be in pursuit of perfection. We do a lot better serving Christ, pursuing perfection, than we would otherwise. But if these... Doubts press on my convictions. What countermeasures do I have? What protection? What can I throw against these things? Because God has not left us defenseless. Faith. Faith mutes doubt. At the very least, it fistfights it. At the very least. Hebrews chapter 11. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Well, doubt can be a mouth of a lion to gobble you up. And faith can overrule these little, or should I say, subtle attacks. David gave in to doubts here, resulting in a repeated mistake. I mean, last time he had to play crazy to get out of this place. But he had nowhere else to go. You know, he made buddies with King Achish of the Philistines with that sword of Goliath. What else happened to it? He goes to the temple, he gets the sword, next thing you know, he's with the Philistines. You think he just, yeah, it is nice, but you can't have it. Of course he gave it to them. What's he going to do lugging that thing around? For nearly a decade, God allowed his enemy to live and to harass him. And that had to play on his mind. It stole away his peace. It stole away his marriage. It almost stole away his life on numerous occasions. Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. I, I think most Christians, who, if you serve, you're going to get to this place. Uh, at some point, you serve long enough, you will get there. He had, as I mentioned, just had this big victory by not killing Saul. What a moral victory. He had to walk away from that. We talked about how... Um, uh, Abishai was just so impressed with David that years later he's, he, he, he indicates that he learned these lessons. And David walks away from that knowing he did the right thing. And yet now he's having a spiritual defeat by seeking escape in the land of the Philistines. 
And this contrary to his last order received from the prophet, as I read just a moment ago. But still, still, God does not change his situation. I did the right thing, and God did not give me. And see, that's where the apostate, apostasy can come in, to, and it does to some people. I mean, they write Christian books, they write Christian songs, they can stand in pulpits, they can be in pews encouraging people, then all of a sudden they're not in the faith anymore. You can argue your theology all you want. Fact is a fact. They become disenchanted. David does not become disenchanted with God nor his faith. He just looks to get away from it in a less than ideal way. Uh, Being God's anointed made him an outcast. Well, that's what persecution is. And it should be the case with us. And we better be ready to stand up to it. We find ourselves persecuted for Christ. We should be going, yeah, man. Thank you. So they persecuted the prophets who were before me. What use are the promises of faith when Satan appears unstoppable, unbeatable? Well, the Bible takes the time to tell us about these things. The whole 11th chapter of Hebrews is just dealing with that very thing. The whole 11th chapter is saying to us, this is what happens when your faith remains in the face of defeat. Hebrews 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. Also of David and Samuel and the prophets. So you can see the writers just bubbling with all. He believes this. He believes that these people lived. They were real people. And they faced a very real devil. And while they died one day, they are alive and they won. That's what the writer believes, and so do we. And then verse 38 of Hebrews 11, he says, still others. There's more. (laughs) Still others. Where am I? Still another verse. Verse 36 is still others. Had trials, mockings, scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. And then he goes on, verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. They died not seeing what they were hoping to see. And in so doing, they got to see what we all hope to see. The king of, the king of kings. Well, not at that time, because there's that whole theological thing with the cross and Sheol and paradise, but eventually they got there. So there are times when God's tender love for his people seems to, con- to be contradicted by suffering. Suffering seems to contradict God's love, but faith overcomes that. It addresses that. It faces that. Many Christians have died unpleasant deaths, trusting God nonetheless, which he allows for his purposes. Job, Job says, The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of his judges. He says, if not he, who else could it be? God allows this. Nobody else can overrule him. He allows this. Doesn't mean he authors it, though. He's the author and finisher of our faith, not of evil. He just uses evil to develop our faith. And so his provisions appear 
to be contradicted by the problems in our lives, his promises challenged, and our faith, if our faith might fail from time to time in the sense that we just don't trust, not that we walk away from the faith, but in those times, God still comes by and delivers us. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. This is who he is. He is loyal. He is trustworthy. He cannot deny himself. It does not mean that verse that, well, yeah, well, God's good. If you are faithless, he's going to deal with you because that's who he is. <laughs> because we'd be dealing with all of us. Remember Peter denying the Lord? The Lord looked at Peter and Peter went out and wept. That look, that look that Peter got, that eye full was not wasted. It penetrated the heart of Peter and the Lord rebuilt that man. Bunyan in his Pilgrim's Progress, when he gets to the part where the character Christian faces Apollyon, Satan, and they're having this argument and Apollyon is being defeated in the argument by Christian. And Christian says, right before Apollyon, the devil pounces on him physically in, in, in the story, the metaphorical story. Uh, but Bunyan says this to the devil when the devil says, yeah, well, if God is so this and so that, and why are you people suffering? Why do Christians, you know, and so this is his response. He says, his forbearing at present to deliver them is on purpose to try their love, whether they will cleave to him to the end. Now, remember, Bunyan was suffering as a Christian. He was put in jail for preaching the truth. He was not conforming to other people's ideas. He was adhering to the scripture. Jeremiah, after seeing what happened to Jerusalem at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar's armies. I mean, they just leveled it. He writes in the lamentation about God. He says, you have covered yourself with a cloud. That prayer should not pass through. Do you hear me, Lord? I'm praying. I'm crying out day and night. David wrote Psalms. You know, my tears run down my face day and night. I'm, I'm sobbing and you're just not doing anything. Again, the backdrop for everything I'm saying is David just saying, Saul's going to get me. I've got to take matters into my own hands and go over to the enemy. But Psalm 97 answers. Well, of course, in Lamentations, the Jews brought that on themselves, all prophetic fulfillment. But still, the prophet went through it emotionally. In Psalm 97, clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Yeah, I don't get what he's doing because of these clouds in the way. Though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. The fact is that even if I don't get it, you are who you are. You are righteous and you are just. And these are the foundations of your sovereignty, your throne. You rule. And you may not rule the way I want you to in this life. But after this life, it will be all where it needs to be. And we will rejoice. No less than seven times do we read in the life of David about David seeking the Lord. We read these words. No less than seven times David inquired of Yahweh, but not here. These are the lessons the Holy Spirit. He lays it out and he puts it in front of him. This is what I want you to learn. So that when it's your turn, you know that you're not the first one. That you have a template for success, for victory in the faith. It says here in verse 1, we're still in verse 1. <laughs> what is wrong with you all? 
There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. The words of a weary soul. Your heart's got to go out with him. He's just exhausted spiritually and more. He's tired of this. He wants his life back. And he's got to care for all these people that are with him. He's the type of man that cannot just walk away from them. You know, they wake up in the morning, where's David? He's gone. He's not that kind of man. And Saul will despair of me and seek uh, to seek me anymore in any part of Israel. Yep, that, that, that's what's going to happen. So I shall escape out of his hand. And for 16 months, as we'll be told in a little bit, he will be Saul free in th- that sense. But still, he didn't know he was untouchable. Yet being chased made that not that important because it still involved pain and suffering. Yeah, he's not going to kill me, but this is miserable, he could have also said. I mean, I've believed at times and still do sometimes that God works too slowly and inadequately. I don't believe that. I mean, I think that. The thought comes across my mind. I had a friend years ago tell me, my mother told me, he said, God works two ways, mysteriously and slowly. That was all of his theology, and it was right. So Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, God is faithful. He doesn't have to write the rest of the letter after that, you would think, but we need the details. God is in the details when it comes to the Scripture. The devil may be in the detail with contracts. God's in the details in Scripture. God's apparent, his silence, his apparent inaction, does not point to his cruelty or his withholding a blessing. He knows what he's doing. It's sort of that, and we told this in Deuteronomy 29, 29, and these, I'll, I'll paraphrase it, God says to us, it's for me to know and you to find out. And because we know who he is, we can say, okay, you are worthy. You are worth it. Romans 12 gives us a New Testament reminder of the Christian life under all circumstances, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. I I don't have time for patience. I, I hate patience, actually. It's so much in the way of what I want to do. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, and I'll paraphrase him too, says, stop praying, find out what happens to you. <laughs> stop praying and see how quickly things go get worse, even if you think you succeed. Have not I commanded you, Joshua? Be strong and of good courage. He goes on to say, then you have good success, because there's a such thing as bad success. Verse 2, then David arose and went over with 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. So his following has grown. He now has 600 men. We talked about this from First Chronicles. He's going to get even more, not a lot more, by the time he gets to the oasis Ziklag. But God increases David's number in anticipation of David Dwelling amongst the hostile Philistines. How do we know that? Well, the first time David shows up, he's with about five guys. They go to the temple, there's just enough bread for them. This time, he's got a battalion with him. They won't be so quick to push him around and think about taking him prisoner this time. 
But he's seeking political asylum, and Achish, the king of Gath, who seems to be a, a nice guy as Philistines go, but a little naive, he can use the mercenaries that David is bringing with him. Uh, we're not privy to the what the Philistine council warlords were discussing. The, over, the five overlords of the Philistines, they were, of course, plotting Saul's death, which they will pull off in 16 months. It would take them about that long just to get ready for it. I mean, how many arrows do you have to make? You don't have, you know, an assembly line. So before you go to war, you've, you've got to build up for it. You don't want to go settle for a, you know, an army that's not supplied. Supply is everything. Tactics for amateurs, supply is for pros, goes the saying. Anyway, I feel in a very paraphrased mood because I can't remember the quotes. <laughs> so, uh, this uh, is a spiritual setback, as, as I've been mentioning, to go back again to where he failed. But David, you know, optimistic, it's going to be better this time. No, I do not think David is thinking he's going to bring revival to Gath. I don't think that's even part. I mean, it's just not how they thought back then. You've got your gods, we've got our gods. Israel never really flashed a light. The church does. But Israel, uh, you know, had, you know, look, Jonah. Jonah tried to bury his lamp in the ocean. <laughs> it's just anything but have to preach to the Ninevites. And uh, that wasn't just Jonah. There were others who shared that, that view. Anyway, uh, David, here he is going to those who worship idols. And what we know about David is he hated that kind of stuff. He took it personal. You know, if you believed in an idol and you were in Israel, he, he just could not stomach that. He wrote it into many of his psalms, not just one or two. And so as again... He, he, he makes this mistake. He repeats this mistake, but God does not slam him for it. I like to hear that. But I'm cautious to say that to other Christians because I don't know if they're as strong, as strong as I am. That's a joke. But as a Bible teacher, you have to have, you know, you can't, you, you don't want to open the door for someone to say, okay, well, weakness is now acceptable. We always want to be fighting it. But again, uh, God's so gentle with him. Here he is amongst uh, the idolaters. Psalm 31, verse 6, David writes, I have hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in Yahweh. Well, Achish trusts in idols, David. What are you doing over there? The case I'm building up against David is, again, he does not belong there. He's out of his element. And he's going to come to that conclusion, of course. He knows it. He just doesn't know what to do. Psalm 26, verse 4. I have not sat with idolaters, idolatrous mortals, nor will I go with hypocrites. <laughs> yeah, you can, you, know, you can talk a big fight in this life, even a Christian fight. You still got to do, you still got to go through with it. Well, anyway, uh, the, the subtle little things are different. And this time and the last time, I think I've hit most of them. Uh, well, Achish probably said, David, you've got a lot of men with you now. What happened? Last time you were here, you were a nut. <laughs> David, I got better. <laughs> what else could he say? <laughs> Verse 3. 
So so David dwelt dwelt with Achish at Gath. Remember, Goliath is from Gath. Well, was from Gath. And uh, Gath was is in the book of Guinness Book of Records for making the largest helmet ever made for a human being. Okay, that's not true, but it's funny. Uh, so he says, so David dwelt with Achish at Gath. He and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, boo, and Abigail, the Carmelitis, Nabal's widow, yay! <laughs> and Hinoam, she's not going to produce any children. That, they're gonna, it's going to be a problem. And again, Abigail sort of fades out. I'm sure she gets rid of the palace life and goes back to her ranch, remaining David's wife, however. Anyway, uh, Achish, very happy to, to see David come and sort of be this feudal servant, this vassal. That's what uh, the word I wanted. And he also knows that if David is to amass 600 men, those are 600 less men the Philistines would have to face in an all-out war. That's a battalion less. And so he's happy with that. Maybe more will defect to David, and that will weaken Saul. Uh, So it makes sense from if you look at it that way. But again, I always get the feeling that Achish seems to have lacked good judgment. I wouldn't have been comfortable with David over there. He killed a hero. He's, I mean, that's never going to go away. And his peers will not be comfortable with it either. They're going to challenge Achish. What do you mean David's with us, lining up with us to go against the Jews? You crazy? Send him out of here. I can't wait till we get to that. Just one little moment. But it's just always like, yeah, man, what were you thinking? Who does that? Achish of Gath. <laughs> so... Now you have an answer when someone says to you, who does that? Achish of Gath. (laughs) Saul, the author of this hardship, and I just want to take a moment to quote this New Testament word about Saul's behavior. Woe to the world because of offenses. And they make us stumble. Well, they help us stumble. For offenses must come. Yeah, because we're in a cursed world and we are sinners. And our nature is to sin even if we're born again. Otherwise, there'd be no war, no conflict. Jesus continues, but woe to that man by whom the offenses come. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offenses come. So until he makes that last clause, he's just a general statement. Yeah, we all agree with that. And then he makes it personal. He singles everyone out and says, you make sure it's not you. Because woe to you too. If you are the one causing the righteous to stumble. And that's what Saul is doing. Abigail, the uh, uh, Carmelitis. I always want to say caramel. Because I like caramel. Who doesn't like caramel? Anyway. uh, I can put it on my burgers. It's so good. No, that's much. But anyhow. Nabal's widow, she she is referred this way uh, frequently. Uh, The the historians just never let anybody forget that this was a miracle. That Nabal was struck dead for his treatment of of David and Abigail and others. Uh, Verse 4, and it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. So he goes across the border. And, and now he, he 
This does not, again, confirm that this was the right choice. But as I mentioned, it's easy to put ourselves in the judgment seat when we're not in the hot seat. But he's trading one trouble for another trouble, and I covered that hopefully a little bit at the introduction of this consideration this evening. Uh, back to 1 Samuel, listen to David's words before he met King Saul. He shows up at the battle line when nobody's fighting. Saul or Goliath is coming out, taunting, mocking, terrorizing everybody, humiliating them which is even worse than being struck uh, to be humiliated day after day. And David hears of it, and David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You see, he's like, he is in it. He backs it up. You know, talk is cheap, but it ain't cheap when you go back it up like he does do. My point is to draw this contrast. Here he has this disdain for the Philistines, who were the enemies of God people, who were to be pushed out of the land. And now he's seeking refuge with them. And he's going to lie more and more. And listen to verse, I'm not going to get read verse 5, all of it yet, just to make the point to build it up. Verse 5, he he says to Achish, for why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? Uh, why are you the Philistine's servant, David? You see what happened, was happening? He's, he, he doesn't mean this. He knows he's not a Philistine servant, but he's got to play this game. Well, he shouldn't be there. He should have the hardship of surviving Saul in the promised land rather than dwelling with the enemies. Uh, Peace at any price is not advisable for us. The end does not justify the means. We have to guard against these things. Yes, we do them from time to time, but we always are convicted if we are living in the light of Scripture. I mean, I'm convinced that Paul should not have taken those men down to the temple to make that little offering for them. He writes all about it, as I believe he wrote Hebrews, uh, later on, but God stopped him from making that offering by, by having him arrested. So we, we make these mistakes and we recover. Verse 5, then David said to Achish, if I have now found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town or country that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? He's lying him. I mean, he, David's sick of the Philistines. And so are the people that he's with. There's a cultural clash going on. So he shows up with 600 men, and they're probably on the outskirts of the, of the city, but they're interacting with the Philistines, and they can't stand each other. And he knows this, and so he goes very diplomatically and says, why should you know your servant dwell here with flattering the king? And Achish, gullible, probably glad to get rid of him too, says, well, I got this place, there's some water there. It's called Ziklag. That's a manly name for a place for you to dwell, David. I mean, Tinkletown would have been bad. <laughs> I said, David, I give you Tinkletown. No, I don't want it. <laughs> I mean, I, I live one, one little town from, an, a, the town is named Manquin. Why couldn't I have moved there? Don't, doesn't that an appealing name for us men in an age where, anyway, let's just get back to this. So, uh, the subtle indicators are showing the potential for a drift. 
if he's not careful with his lying and just not being forthright and just subtle little things. Verse 6, so Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore, a Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Well, according to God in Joshua 14, Ziklag belonged to the Jews, period. First Judah, then Simeon gets it, but it ends up in David's hands. About 20 miles from where Saul lives in Gibeah, and uh, as the crow flies, as you walk there, it's probably 40 miles. Uh, but any way, be that as it may, he now has this place where there's water in the desert. And this is now desert area. It says, therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah uh, uh, from that day forward. This, there's an, this is an editor, the, editor, the editor of the historical events who has published this for us is saying these things are written after the split of the, of, the, of the kingdom of the Jews into north and south. This is sort of a time stamp of when it was published, not the events taking place. And uh, his forces grew. We read this last session. It's worth reading again. Now these, 1 Chronicles 12, verse 1. Now these were the men who came to David at Ziklag while he was still a fugitive from Saul, the son of Kish, and they were among the mighty men, helpers in war. So he gets some quality men added to the ranks. But by the time we get, I think, to chapter uh, 30, we'll find he's, he's still said to have 600 men. It's not an exact, it's 650 or something like that. It's certainly within, rounded off. Anyway, uh, he never gives this territory back to the Philistines. Verse 7, now the time that David dwelt in the, country of the Philistines was one year, one full year, and four months. Uh, he, he doesn't know how long he's going to be there. See, we read this, it was only, you know, 16 months. But while he's there, he doesn't know how long Saul's going to live. Saul, he might think, Saul's going to have 20 years. This is going to be my life now. And God knows in 16 months, Saul will be dead. He does work mysteriously. He does work slowly. We learn to live with it. And it's what separates, the, one of the things that separates believers from unbelievers is that God is worthy to us of whatever inconvenience that come our way. Second uh, Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, we read about David asking God after Saul's death, where should I go? It happened after this that David inquired of Yahweh, saying, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And Yahweh said to him, go up. David said, where shall I go up? And he, that is Yahweh, said to Hebron. And so he'll be in Hebron for seven years. And then he becomes king of the, of the, uh, the entire uh, Jewish nation, the people, all tribes. Uh, so he, he probably doesn't ask God about going to the Philistines. Why? Because he knows God's going to say no. What else? Who does that? I'm not going to ask. He's going to say no. Welcome to a pastor's life. <laughs> They're not going to ask me if they can do that one, are they? Um, verse 8. And David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites. The people across the other side were the Geshurongs. <laughs> These guys were, I guess you're right. They just couldn't commit. <laughs> the Gerzites and the Amalekites. 
rapping was in style long before this generation, because if you read it that way, just anyway. Uh, for those nations were the inhabitants of the land from old, as you go to Shear, even as far as the land of Egypt. So uh, these people that aren't far from David, that he is raiding, well, not far, I said within 50 miles, give or take, they likely would have attacked him at some point. If they found out he's doing well, he's got that oasis rolling, his crops and stuff, they, they would attack him. So this, uh, this is certainly, some of it is preemptive, but it also is under the commandment of God. But it's kind of twisted because David should be attacking the Philistines too. But he's justified in this Deuteronomy 20. But of the cities of these people which Yahweh your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, and the Pezzarite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, just as Yahweh your God has commanded you. I don't know, did it sound as odd to them as it does to us, all of these ites? Uh, <laughs> they probably didn't catch it, I, I don't know. But uh, anyway, he's, this is, this is uh, within that commandment, his striking them, but it's, of course, is tainted because he should be doing that to the Philistines also. He's making these raids. He's enriching himself. He is slaughtering the people that he is raiding, men, women, and children, and taking the loot, which uh, was customary in those days. It seems, you know, brutal to us because it was brutal. But uh, in, it was kill or be killed. The Geshurites uh, lived to the southwest as you go towards Egypt. The Gerzites are not mentioned anywhere else, only here. And the Amalekites were the perpetual enemies of the Jews. They were nomadic and they were brutal. And they attacked Moses from the back, from the rear. And, of course, Joshua duked it out with them. Saul was to wipe them out, and he did not. Um, we show up again in the book of Esther. And uh, then eventually they fall off the chart. They are assimilated into other peoples, and they are no more. Uh, sure is that mostly desert area between Egypt and Beersheba. Beersheba, the southernmost part of Israel's boundaries, at least labeled that. So they're all going south. It's all desert is what I'm saying. Uh, and there are these pockets of Bedouin and, and tribes that are there, and he's launching raids. And there's really no way for them to let Achish know that David is, is doing this. They're, they're more ally with Achish than they are with the Jews. But why? Why is that? Well, spiritually, because of Satan, of course. But more on the surface, the Jews were intolerant of the other people's gods. And the other people were not intolerant of each other's gods. And it became personal. What are you saying about my idol? I'm saying it's a piece of junk. Them's fighting words. And so this to this day, uh, the Jews have survived because they, you know, we're not, we're not with you. To a fault, of course, from the Christian perspective. Verse 9, whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the apparel, and returning came to Achish. Again, leaving no witnesses. This is brutal. Um, he, 
one of the reasons why he's dis- disallowed from building the temple of God. God knows this brutality exists under the curse. And God has says, you know, I have to accept some of this or come down and end it all, which he's not yet ready to do. Uh, but uh, he does not want that association. David goes back to Achish with gifts uh, because he is the servant. He's already said that. And as a vassal, he brings him some of these. Not only is he ready to offer military assistance as a vassal, but he is also going to give him some of the goods. Word would get around. Have you seen David at Ziklag? They built that place up. They're all walking around in these nice, you know, Italian suits. And you get nothing, Achish. He would have said, well, we'll see about that. So he has to give him something. Verse 10. Then Achish would say, where have you made a raid today? Well, this is nice. (laughs) Is this Egyptian uh, cotton? Uh, David would say, against the southern area of Judah. He's lying. Well, it's a half-truth. It is Judah's southern area, but it ain't Judah. <laughs> it's not the tribe of Judah he's going against. Or, he would say, against the southern area of those people there. Or against the southern area of the Kenites. So, uh, Achish seems to just adore David. Because Achish is a little goofy. I mean, he just well, you just have people like that in life you just like. You just get along with them very quickly. And I think Achish, you know, after David gets well, <laughs> from Achish's perspective, you know, when he's not kooky, he's not actually kind of a funny guy. David would be in there with his heart busting out the tunes. Achish would be rocking. And just human natures. Verse 11, David would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, lest they should inform on us, saying... Thus David did, and thus was his behavior all the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. And these are brutal people. It's so hard to imagine, you know, driving down the road with somebody who's just wiped out a village. I mean, just, could you imagine it? And with, with up close, I mean, not long-range snipering, throw a hand grenade in. I mean, with your sword, connect, you know. And it was life in that world. So here is David. He wanted to live in the enemy's territory to escape a greater enemy. But he wanted to live in the enemy's territory without troubling that enemy too much. There's a lot of fodder there for us to munch on and think about in the workplace. How how do I handle this? Wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. Uh, We're not here to... uh, wrongfully provoke and be abrasive. Uh, love covers a multitude of sins, but at the same time, we have to try to retain integrity, which is not easy to do. It's very easy to, be, uh, to retain integrity when no one's challenging it. <laughs> Come up with all these rules because this is a nice standard, and then all of a sudden, mm, we've got a problem. So, again, God using an imperfect servant, because he doesn't have any others. Um, verse, and, and when we know that, so hearing that, God, all of his servants are imperfect. I'm almost finished, incidentally. Uh, we don't want someone to say, well, then that's licensed to be imperfect. Uh, that would be very unwise. We, David, his imperfections will increase 
on the record for us as he does well in his life because the temptations increase and he pays a heavy price for his imperfections, which is not incentive to emulate David and say, well, you know, David, God loved him and he was imperfect and God used him and God didn't slam him. That's true most of the time. But there were times that God did slam him. And uh, David, in the end, recovers magnificently when he's an old man. But that's just, you know, um, it's much to learn for us. Verse 12, so Achish believed David, saying, He has made his people Israel utterly abhor him. Ha, ha, ha. Therefore, he will be my servant forever. Achish thought he knew David's heart. It could never be the way Achish thought. Because he was a carnal man. And a carnal man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Even in this day, when the Spirit's not given to preach Messiah, the Spirit is given. And David's heart was never going to side against Yahweh. Uh, The best David could do was hide his heart from Yahweh. When he sinned with Bathsheba for about a year, he he writes about it later. Uh, But... Uh, Just because the king felt secure does not mean he was secure. And so the next chapter we come to, uh, Saul, and as death closes in on him spiritually and physically, we have much to to gather from that. So let's, let's pray. Thank you, Father. Always feeding us. We need it so much. Even the most well-fed saint, though, has to post double the guards. It is a uh, very serious thing to be a Christian, and you help us all the way. And may you find us, in times of discouragement, still submitted to your lordship. May you get us all home safely tonight. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.